Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome into an audio episode of Can We Please Talk Podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And recognizing I may have made a mistake trusting the Saints to close out a six-leg parlay, I'm Nick Saveri. That's spoken like a generic gambler. But we've got a show for you on Leon Media Network if you want to learn more about how not to place bets like Mr. Saveri. On this program, the government, Nick, is going to stop working. So we should all be placing bets on that. Before the September 30th date, the House is looking to impeach President Joe Biden. Hunter Biden is facing federal firearm charges. This is all in our first segment, Nick. Plus, later on in the program, speaking of the law, federal court judge and the author of the book, The Common Floor, Needless Complexity in the Courts and 50 Ways to Reduce It, Judge Thomas McCausher is going to be joining us to discuss his new book, how he would be handling some of these high-profile cases like Hunter Biden and the former president if they came before him in court and more. All of that on the show today. Before I say hello to Nick Savary as he's ripping up his bet sheet there, a new episode of Back Your Play with Q is out now, the sports podcast that will help you place bets properly. Uh, Join Q as he is always joined by the best insiders covering all of the different sports. Uh, The latest episode is about Michigan State's firing of Coach Mel Tucker, Coach Deion Sanders winning a big game this past weekend at the University of Colorado. Check out that episode as Nick Costco's from On3 Sports joined Q New episodes of Back Your Play with Q available on LeonMediaNetwork.com or listen wherever you get your podcasts. And then also my co-host is another co-host on another show here on Lydia Media Network. Educate us. New episode, part two of a great series you guys are doing, looking at the role of educating folks on mental health, or at least the role mental health education plays in different schools out there. A bunch of different guests that work in the space 
over these last couple of episodes. If you've missed them, head to leonmedianetwork.com backslash educate us or listen to the show wherever you get your podcast and check out those great episodes. Now I say hello to Mr. Severi. How how are you doing? Why don't you tell the people a little bit about the uh, the Educate uh, series that you guys are doing right now over the last two episodes with the mental health stuff. I, I think it's great, to be honest with you, hearing some of these folks talk about what they're doing in schools for kids. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll pull I'll pull the scope back a little broader. You know, the last few episodes have been part of a series where we wanted to talk to people who are who are involved in the school community that we sometimes don't pay enough attention to. You know, there's obvious ones like when we think about teachers, for example, you know, and school leaders. But what about those who are also helping to contribute to what we call a school community? Because we recognize that school isn't just about the building and the fact that it serves a purpose in society. And as, as my colleague Patrice likes to call it, it's it's compulsory. You know, we we ask that all students um, or all children attend school right in this country. But what does that mean? So, you know, we've gone from talking to students to talking to teachers, talking to parents. Now we we dive into those who support the mental health of both teachers and students, everything, um, people from school counselors, like a buddy of mine to people, you know, to people in, you know, just different fields in this area, social workers and the like, you know, lately it's what's, it's been what comes up for us, you know, these different members of school community, the conversations that they're having and the work that they're doing. So we're excited about it. So I'm glad the audience is growing. I'm glad we're getting texts from people. I've said this on our, on, on the actual show, I'll say it here. Texts are great. We love when people reach out to us. Again, we have an email address, theeducateusshow at gmail.com. Very easy to find it or very easy to write to it. And please, 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 five-star reviews. I say this in front of the producer of that show, the head of the network that keeps that show there. We got to give give him a reason to keep this work going, folks. Mike Leon needs to be satisfied. So five-star reviews, please. And if you go ahead and throw some text onto that as well, go for it like my boy Mitch did recently with his five-star review for the show. Yeah, don't pull that quote out of context. Mike Leon needs to be pleased. But um, yes, I do agree with you about uh, leaving reviews. You can leave it, obviously, on the Can We Please Talk uh, podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, if the audio podcast platform allows for you to do that. Please do that, but go check out the Educate US show. Like I said, if you work in education or you want to even learn more about it, you know, obviously my best friend has been working in education for forever. You know, those are the kind of folks that really are gravitating to your show. And you can tell, by the way, the ire that you get in one direction or the other when you start talking about stuff that definitely involves, you know, the future of tomorrow or our kids, right? The people that, you know, who are in charge of uh, of teaching these folks and are around these kids all the time. So love the work that you guys are doing. Continue that. How's everything else besides before we get into our first segment? Or I mean, it funnels in. I mean, we've got so much happening in news and politics right now. Washington, D.C. is on fire. We haven't even mentioned the GOP field and their next debate that's coming up next week on Fox Business. We're going to be having a Democratic strategist and, and a co-host of The Five, Jessica Tarlov, is going to be joining us in the next episode to preview that. But um, how you been, Nick? How's everything going before we dive into this first segment here? What, what you got going on your way? I just, I mean, good things. Obviously, the, you know, our, our second podcast, of course, um, the family's good. We're you know, obviously kids are back to school, daycare, all that good stuff. The weather's starting to change. Um, I feel old as I say this. I talk about the weather. I talk about my kids. You know, like life for me is great. I'm trying to find time to read again and um, enjoy more of the weather. You know, try to stay physically fit, get outside more often. I realize I'm just leaving a sedentary lifestyle working from home. So trying to counter that. Uh, but how about you? 
I'm doing good, man. I'm going to be on uh, TV again coming up soon. Stay tuned for that, folks. Well, I follow us at Can We Please Talk Podcast over on Instagram. Uh, we'll have more information when that is posted. But um, I'm very excited to do that again. And when I got the call up, it's I feel like a, a Yankees uh, a reliever. You know, you get the call up in September for people that get the baseball reference. And I'm just ready to go out there, Yankee Stadium, run out in the tunnel, pitch an inning, and then see if anybody remembers me after that inning pitch, right? And if they want to keep me on the team. So that's kind of what I'm going through right now. But everybody's good. Traveled back from, from New York and D.C. doing some stuff in there. So if you follow me on social, you'll know that that's where I was over the last few weeks. And speaking of Washington, D.C., we've got a lot to get to in our first segment because right now, D.C., like I mentioned before, is on fire in terms of all of the different things that are playing out right now, President Biden and the impeachment inquiry, September 30th, the big government shutdown date that is looming right now, and what Speaker McCarthy plans on doing, because if the government shut down, can't do an impeachment inquiry. Uh, for people that don't know what's going on with the government shutdown, take a listen to what is actually playing out right now, as summarized by ABC News. Congress is now racing to avert a government shutdown. They have just 13 days left to strike a deal, but the chaos and the infighting only seems to be getting a whole lot worse. A group of House Republicans have put forth a short-term funding bill. This is now on the table. This would cut federal spending, increase the number of border agents, and keep the lights on for another month. But hard-right conservatives are already blasting that proposal, saying they will not vote for it, and it will likely go nowhere in the Senate. Missing from that bill, additional funding for Ukraine. The White House and leaders in the Senate Senate want $24 billion, but a growing number of House Republicans are saying that's a non-starter. The push for Ukraine will take center stage in Washington this week. President Zelensky is expected to meet with President Biden at the White House on Thursday, and then he's expected to travel to Capitol Hill to make another very personal plea for more aid. This would be the fourth government shutdown, by the way, Nick. If this does happen over the last uh, 20, 30 years, uh, McCarthy is struggling to bring the 2024 spending legislation to the House floor, as everyone knows, Republicans have the slim majority in the House. And so what's happening right now is you're getting members uh, of the Freedom Caucus in the House and then more moderate Republicans that are in the House that are very upset with Speaker McCarthy. Take it, for example, I saw something in The Hill recently um, from Representative Victoria Sparks out of Indiana. She called Speaker Kevin McCarthy the weakest speaker uh, and that she said, this is another worthless Congress if we can't get this bill passed. Unfortunately, I'm quoting from her, real leadership takes courage and willingness to fight for the country, not for power. And a picture on a wall. The Republican House is failing the American people again and pursuing a path of gamesmanship and circus. Neither Republicans nor Democrats have the backbone to challenge the corrupt swamp that is bankrupting our children and our grand and our grandchildren. Excuse me. Um there's a bunch here with this, Nick. I, I, I know we wanted to start with a little bit of what's on Speaker McCarthy's plate because it kind of funnels into the next part of it, which is the impeachment inquiry. But if you can't fund the government and the government's not open, you're going to get millions of people that are going to get temporarily furloughed or laid off that work for the government. Um, I saw Adam Kinzinger recently on CNN, the former representative out of Illinois, saying that he probably thinks this is going to happen. The last time it did happen, during the Obama administration, at the time, House Speaker John Boehner said, you guys want to play chicken? Let's play chicken. And then the government was shut down for about 24 days or 34 days, I think it was. Um, and this is not the way to go right now, because Speaker McCarthy mentioned something about 
the American people are, are going to judge us based on October, obviously what they do if they can pass this stuff. But what they're really going to judge them on is in November of 24. People, while they may have short-term memories, they remember this type of infighting. And we're going to get into the impeachment inquiry and some of the evidence behind that. But what do you make right now of the government potentially heading towards this shutdown, the date that's looming? Um, I don't even know if they're, they're potentially trying to pass this mini resolution that will at least temporarily fund the government until October 31st. I feel like we're always playing this game where we go back and forth with temporary measures uh, and we just get to that 18th hour you know, 24th hour, as people like to say, 23rd hour. And we can't even uh, pass this stuff through. What do you make of of what's going on right now with this potential government shutdown that's looming? Yeah, we're not really dealing with a functioning government or at least a functioning Congress. I mean, I think we've seen polarization for a while now, particularly, you know, in in the Freedom Caucus. And it's been playing out I, you know, earlier. There was a there were a couple of tweets from Manu at CNN, you know, talking to, you know, Hudson, representative of the Hudson Valley, you know, in New York, representative Mike Lawler. You know, and talking about, you know, what we're considering the, the, the House Freedom Caucus's demands and some of the things he had said would be quoted as I wouldn't even call them my right flank. This is not conservative republicanism. This is stupidity. The idea we are going to shut the government down when we don't control the Senate, we don't control the White House. To me, this isn't about them somehow being conservative Republicans. They are not. At the end of the day, you can be in the permanent minority and throw bombs all day, every day and vote against bills on the floor and pull stunts, or you can be the majority and govern. If you want to have a stronger hand, run better candidates and win more elections. If you keep running lunatics, you will be in this position. I credit the representative here. This is not about party lines. This is just recognizing there's a problem in your side of the party. These are hardliners that will not vote for essentially anything. I mean, I'm not going to get into her personal business, folks. But let's just look at, for example, Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado. Most recently gets kicked out of a theatrical performance at the local theater, Beetlejuice. We saw what she was doing with her date at that time. These are the kinds of people that are about to shut the government down. We saw this from the beginning with Kevin McCarthy. He narrowly won the speaker vote. We went through how many elections, how many votes to get him to win it. We've had an easier time getting popes through that we've had a Speaker of the House. He basically, he narrowly wins, has to make agreements that essentially all it takes is just one person to just bring it up to a vote to have him booted. He makes all the concessions. Most recently, the impeachment, moving forward with the impeachment proceeding, I don't know if Kevin McCarthy is as insane as the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the party, but he certainly listens to them. And now he's in a situation where you're just going to lose these votes. The, the maneuver he's putting forward at least I give him credit for the fact that you recognize that it is a horrible look for the Republicans if you are responsible for shutting down the government. You cannot run and talk about a failing economy and talk about America's not getting what they need because Bidenomics isn't working, allegedly. Meanwhile, you're about to cut federal federal funding to people because you can't get it right in Congress. So which is it? Is it the government failing or people just want the government to fail? And that seems to be the latter for this fringe of the Republican Party. One thing I I do want to mention, because as we're recording this and this is coming out now in real time, that two key factions of House Republicans have crafted a short term stopgap measure. Um, Everybody has heard this term probably if you haven't been watching network news or listening to 
uh, news related podcast, uh, CR, which is a continuing resolution. This would temporarily fund the government through October 31st. So I, I alluded to it earlier, but now as we're literally recording this in real time, apparently this has not been agreed upon, but this has been presented by two key factions of it. The bill is sponsored by, I'm reading now from USA Today, uh, members of the Conservative House Freedom Caucus. You know who those folks are. Nick just alluded to one of them and Lauren Boebert, Louis Gohmert, you know, the usual folks that are in that, the Marjorie Taylor Greene, to quote Logan Roy, those are not serious people. But unfortunately, they do have right now uh, the ear, or maybe they don't have the ear. They have the ear of their constituents, that's for sure. But they have uh, Kevin McCarthy's, uh, you know, feet kind of hanging in their hands. And then you've got the more moderate Main Street Caucus, so those are the, the those are the two members uh, from these different caucuses. It doesn't say which ones are the members that actually put this together, but the bill would impose an eight percent spending cut on federal agencies. That does not include national defense budget, Department of VA. Obviously, we know uh, Republicans love to not limit the national defense budget or you know the veteran affairs uh, budget. So this temporary measure would also include border security provisions. Um, but some of the folks that are in those groups have lambasted it. I just mentioned what Victoria Sparks said. Uh, Don Bacon said something as well. We're going to get into what he said in just a second. There's a lot with this government shutdown. But one of the things um, crucial to this, if this government shutdown does happen, is the fact that using funds for committees. And one of those committees is right now opening up an impeachment inquiry into the current president of the United States and President Biden. Uh, Speaker McCarthy last week gave a speech where he talked about opening up this investigation into the president of the United States and a bunch of different things that he alleges the, the current president of the United States has engaged in. Take a listen to what he said last week when talking about opening up the impeachment inquiry. Through our investigations, we have found that President Biden did lie to the American people about his own knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. Eyewitnesses have testified that the president joined on multiple phone calls and had multiple interactions. Dinners resulted in cars and millions of dollars into his sons and his son's business partners. We know that bank records show that nearly $20 million in payments were directed to the Biden family members and associates through various shale companies. The Treasury Department alone has more than 150 transactions involving the Biden family and other business associates that were flagged as suspicious activity by U.S. banks. Even a trusted FBI informant has alleged a bribe to the Biden family. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. I played that sound from Speaker McCarthy last week. In 2019, when the House opened an impeachment inquiry into the former President of the United States, Donald Trump, this is what he said after that impeachment inquiry was open and Nancy Pelosi announced it to the American people. Our job here is a serious job. Our job is to focus on the American public. Our job is to make tomorrow better than today. Our job is to legislate. 
not to continue to investigate something in the back when you cannot find any reason to impeach this president. So, I mean, you could have, if you put that side by side, you would have thought he said that earlier in the day about the same thing. Um, it's so ridiculous. The, I always mention this all the time on the show. If you can't see the hypocrisy when you commit it, you, you know, it's ridiculous, right? There's hypocrisy on a lot of these different things. But if you can't see the hypocrisy from the 2019 perfect phone call, we can get into whether or not Donald Trump uh, did some of the things or that impeachment inquiry should have been open. But there isn't anything to impeach President Biden on right now. Nick, before I get your takes on the, the House impeachment inquiry, and if it'll even happen, by the way, if the government is shut down, there's a bunch of different claims that he made in there. So I want to kind of give you this fact and information before you, you, you give your piece here. He claims that the Biden family and associates got $20 million through shell companies that he said there. Um, this is true. This is true. Bank records show nearly $20 million in payments were directed to the Bidens. However, there's no public evidence to date that the president himself personally received any money. In 2018 or 2017, excuse me, when former President Trump disassociated himself from the Trump family, the big claim by Democrats at the time was how can he disassociate himself from the businesses, right? There's no way you're telling me he used to be CEO and now Donald Jr. and Eric Trump are not looping him in on this. So Republicans would make that argument, excuse me, not Democrats, Republicans would make that argument, hey, he can't disassociate himself. But here they are in the same vein, saying that the Biden, that Joe Biden is not able to disassociate himself. Do you not see the hypocrisy in that, Nick? Uh, before you go, I just, I just think that that is so ridiculous. Now, there's more in terms of what he said there. Uh, he mentioned, uh, and it's a longer speech you can go check out over on YouTube. He mentioned that an informant alleged the Biden family got a bribe that this trusted FBI informant gave it up. And it is true. This informant gave a tip to the FBI in 2020, but it was from a Ukrainian businessman that he had heard from. And that's where he was able to send that tip over to the FBI. So it hasn't been proven. Allegations alleged, everything's alleged in terms of all of the evidence. I'm using air quotes for those of you watching us on YouTube that they've been pointing to but nothing, there is no smoking gun so far. Biden participated in calls and dinners with his son's business partners. That's what he mentions there in the clip that eyewitnesses have testified to the president joining in on multiple phone calls. I mean, a lot of it is out of context because a Hunter Biden associate, Devin Archer, testified that even though Joe Biden was on these calls or at these dinners, he didn't discuss family business. I've made this point on other shows. You know how much my dad is involved in this business, Nick? Zero percent, zero percent. And again, it's not to be antidotal, but how many times do you really involve your dad or your mom in the businesses that you are dealing in, right? I mean, how many times? I'm sure there's examples out there, but I'm also sure there's examples like what I just gave with my family. A lot to disprove in that, but I want to get high level what you take away from the impeachment inquiry first being opened itself. What McCarthy said there, some of these things that have been disproven, Nothing actually linking the president to anything nefarious with these business dealings. What do you make of it all? It's all they've got left. Uh, it can't be a policy matter. You know, we've seen too many successful examples of bipartisanship. You know, that, have, that the Republicans have obviously you know helped to make happen. So, so what do you do? You know, you go after the you go after the person themselves. And again, 
and this is the part, well, you know, Tim will clip this, where I'm going to say that, you know, Trump supporters are going to say that this is the exact same thing as what their guy, you know, was getting busted on or impeached about. And fools, it's not. It simply is not the same thing. You can go after Hunter Biden all you want, and clearly they're going after him after a gun charge. There's no connection to the president. The idea that, you know, President Biden is sitting in or virtually joining meetings or whatever is not the same thing as, I don't know, let me think, um, your son-in-law collecting $2 billion from the Saudis. That seems to be worth something diving into. Um, The business dealings of the Trump family are well documented. So I'm not quite sure where the equivalency here is. And the clip, I'm glad you played the clip about Kevin McCarthy a moment ago because he's he's just been two-faced about this, like the Republicans are in general. And perhaps the Democrats are guilty of this too. You know, Mike, earlier today, I was reading about United, the United Auto Workers, and we're going to probably talk about that later on, talk about what they're fighting for right now. You know, in the last few months, 2023 in general has been a year of a strike. You know, unions are, there are more and more unions being formed in this country. Basically, people are unhappy. There are numbers telling us that people don't think the United States is going in, a, in the right direction, right? And that's fueling the possibility of Trump winning the election in 2024. All of this is going on. And what are we doing here? You don't even have to trust me if you don't. And if you want to consider me a liberal, you can say whatever you want. Fine. From the Hill, Senate GOP says House lacks evidence for impeachment. Folks, I've said it on this show for a while, and I think I want a few people to say this, by the way. So I'm going to take some credit here and do my victory lap. The Republican Party has been splintered. Senate GOP wants to keep sending money to Ukraine to keep combating the Russians. The Senate GOP doesn't want to move forward with an impeachment hearing. What is going on in the House Republicans that doesn't seem to that there's just a total disconnect here? It's almost like the Senate Republicans are the big brother to really an infantile child that is the baby brother of that party. And there is nothing in common right now. So they're going to go ahead, gin this up and send it to the Senate, and then nothing's going to happen. We're going to waste, once again, a lot of taxpayer dollars for something that truly does not matter. And it's not the same as what had happened with the former president, where you've had numerous, you've had numerous investigations come through that say, you know, even from Robert Mueller, that, you know, from his standpoint, he can only take that so far. This is up to Congress to make the decision of what to do next, and which is what they did. It's not the same thing. But again, people are going to believe what they want to believe. And, I, and I'll be sympathetic to those that say, well, hey, you know, you went after our guy. We should go after your guy. I mean, if that's what you want to do. Fine. Right now, I'm more interested in the fact that we've got people striking, people wanting to make more money from United Auto Workers to actors to writers, you know, and now we're on the verge of a government shutdown, which, again, Mike, as you've been rightfully bringing up. Go ahead and shut down the government. Well, then there goes your impeachment proceeding, which we talked about that on the show. Again, second victory lap. Mike and I talked about this. The foolishness of this move is that what you want so bad, which is to get people you know, from the Biden administration in Congress, specifically in the House, in uh, these congr- in congressional hearings, to just basically, again, obfuscate until the election in 2024, because the Republicans have nothing to stand on, period. I've yet to be proven differently on this. There is no particular policy vision of this party so what do you do you just want to just go after the you want to go after the president go ahead it's absolutely beyond stupid and it is a waste of money 
and it's yeah. absolutely going nowhere. And we've even had there was at least one person that was quoted from the House GOP that said, well, we don't have the evidence just yet, but we're going to get it. So we're going to move forward with this based on what exactly. But again, this is we just said this earlier about this about this version of the party is the same people who want to shut down the government. The same people also want an impeachment. That is actually perhaps the best headline I can say for how shockingly stupid, shockingly, because they won elections, shockingly stupid that these people are. Let me chime in there on a little bit of this. First off, um, not to defend the GOP in, in, in any of this. I will. I agree with you wholeheartedly. These are not serious people. Some of the folks that are, are looking for this type of chaos to continue. Uh, and, and I mentioned a bunch of them so far in some of these clips. Um, Representative Don Bacon from Nebraska urged his party to not go down this road. He said that he does not support this. It's too early. Given the lack of evidence against President Joe Biden. Let me read you the direct quote, Nick. If there's a high crime or misdemeanor, which is what impeachment is supposed to be about, well, let's get the facts. I don't think it's healthy or good for our country. So I wanted to set a high bar. I want to do it carefully. I want to do it conscientiously, do it meticulously. But it's been done. So at this point, we'll see where the facts are. That's spoken like somebody that knows that he's kind of screwed because he's got to go back to his district and say, are you impeaching Biden? And I'm sure there are people that are going to be like, yeah, we are impeaching Biden. This is great. Time to get rid of him. The problem is, is that's not what impeachment is for. You actually have to do something. It's not because you don't like the policy or vision that somebody has for this country. That is not an impeachable offense. And that's the issue we're having right now because they keep pointing to things. I heard a Washington Examiner reporter say this the other day. On, on a Fox News podcast that, well, there's allegations of this, so we should look at them. Do you know what the word alleged means, my friend? You're looking into something that's alleged that is not verified. Like, and that's the issue I'm having right now, because I'm, I'm with you, Nick, in terms of like, we want to do the policy debates. Uh, Democrats tend to stuff things into bills that don't belong there. And then Republicans will try to strip it out. Republicans want to be in, incredibly conservative in terms of fiscal spending, but then they'll give tax breaks to people that are really rich. I get all that. We can get into all of that. The issue that we're having right now is not about any of that. It's that some members, about 20 or so from the Freedom Caucus, don't like President Biden, ran on campaigns about impeaching President Biden, just like we've had members of the progressive party in the Democratic side, we've noted a few of them here on this show that clapped when President uh, Trump got impeached, if you recall, and Nancy Pelosi gave them the hardest stare of all time in the House chamber. Like, that's not what we do. It's not here to cheer something. We're doing it because there's actual evidence, and that's why we're impeaching him. Here on this side, I know they're launching the inquiry, and we're a long way away from actually getting the votes for impeachment. But there's nothing to impeach President Joe Biden on right now, folks. There's nothing like Don Bacon just said there that gets to the level of high crimes and misdemeanor. One thing I did want to mention before we go to the break is Hunter Biden in all of this, a non-government official, son of the president, who everybody from this House Freedom Caucus loves to rail on in Fox News primetime. He got indicted on federal firearm pur purchasing charges after a plea deal failed. Special counsel brought these charges against him recently. And then 
he is now suing the IRS. Um, what do you make of right now Hunter Biden being a story onto himself and how it's diverting attention away from a guy who's potentially trying to win a second term, who's going to be 81 to 84 if he wins. He's getting questions about his age and what, you know, who's going to take over after him, which is the vice president potentially, if God forbid something were to happen to him during his term. And a lot of people, even on the Democratic side of the aisle, don't like her, like Nancy Pelosi and Jamie Raskin, who both recently on CNN, both couldn't say whether or not they supported Kamala Harris if she was going to be the eventual nominee. They just said, well, that's who Joe Biden liked. So we've got issues playing out right now. Worker strike, you mentioned, government shutdown looming. We've got an impeachment inquiry being launched with no potential impeachment uh, evidence. And then here's the president's son getting charges. What do you make of it as we head into this like supercharged political cycle over the next 12 months? These are going to be the talking points. Former president's under indictment. Hunter Biden's under indictment. What do you make of, of the Hunter indictment charges? The Hunter Biden, excuse me, indictment charges. That this is the second administration where we've had the the kids of the president that are screw ups. Yeah, I remember I remember Trump's kids, you know, some of which being at that meeting with Paul Manafort, you know, discussing potential Russian interference in the 2016 election. So, you know, we're pulling this out to have this conversation about, you know, what is what the kids of the president does? Is that somehow an indictment on the president? And it shouldn't be. And it's always felt like a waste with this matter of Hunter Biden, but he sounds like a screw up. I, folks, I'll be again, you know, I get labeled all kinds of fun stuff here. And I, I and I honestly don't care, but I do appreciate the engagement. So keep it up um, real quick. But, yeah. Just real quick. It only matters if your kids are screw up, if they have a government clearance. Other than that, I don't care. I'm going to have government clearance. Yes. And, and Ivanka had a government clearance. Jared Kushner's son-in-law had a government clearance. So, I just want to clarify that. Like, I'm a, I'm in agreement with you. The kids just screw up. Cool. As long as they don't have a government clearance. And in the case of the last administration, two of them did. Now get into your train of thought. I apologize. No, no, don't. No, but you're right, though. I mean, this, this is where this becomes a matter of, like, what kind of access do these people have? You know, and it's felt from the beginning. And again, let's go back to when the House, when the Republicans won the House. Well, it was a couple of days in that they already talked about, you know, they're going to go back into this matter about Hunter Biden. And I'm not sure what exactly you're going to find. And it sounds eerily similar to what we're hearing about this impeachment hearing, which is there's really not a lot of facts here to try to connect to a bigger story. But let's dig in enough in the hopes of getting the facts, which, Mike, you talked recently to a federal judge. We've talked to legal experts on this show. It's mind boggling that the approach would be that we don't have enough now. But if we go through a legal proceeding, we'll find more. And it feels odd. It, like, is that that doesn't make sense. It usually is. You have enough information for grounds to move forward. And then you do. And you mentioned, by the way, the 20 you know, members of the House Freedom Caucus. Go ahead and lump the Speaker of the House there, too, which is a, stunning to me. Because there's moments where Kevin McCarthy seems like a relatively functioning human being and then has moves like this where just to either protect his seat or whatever, throws a bone to the less desirable faction of his party. But yeah, I mean, the part about Hunter Biden, and you've said this before, I'll echo it here. If what he has done is criminal, then arrest him, book him, put him in jail. I do not care. I've said this on the show too. 
you know, and we talked about this with another legal expert about, you know, is is Hunter Biden getting the kind of preferential treatment in a court of law that I wouldn't get, that you wouldn't get, that most people we know wouldn't get? And if the answer is yes, then once again, you know, this is America, as that Childish Gambino song goes. Prosecute, move forward if he's guilty. That's it. Where this does get startlingly sad for me is that you know, when we have people that make voting decisions based on this stuff, that's the part that I find really, you know, really troubling is that if you looked at Hunter Biden and said, well, I don't really like what's going on there. I'm going to say something I, I, that's going to sway my decision about the president. Then you must have been one of those dopes that also thought because Roger Clinton is an idiot, I'm not going to vote for Bill Clinton in 92 or 96. Like, what's the matter with you? You brought a number a moment ago. I'm going to come back to it. 81. You know, that's that's what we're talking about with President Biden earlier today on another show on Sirius, which I thought was a fantastic show, by the way, about politics. No, nothing partisan. Just here's what's going on. There was a professor at Notre Dame that talked about age limits and something I didn't realize when I heard this. And it was startling to me was those who had helped put forward the Constitution, the average age of these pivotal figures was in their mid 30s. That's incredible. Because when we see these pictures of James Madison, um, Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, all these folks, we tend to think of like elderly people, right? But they were mid-30s. That's younger than us right now. It was inconceivable to them that you were talking about people in their 70s and 80s standing in political office. It was unconscionable, not to mention the fact that the average you know, length of life then is far shorter than it was now. Shout out to science. So it was never thought of like, yes, we should have a minimum age limit to vote and participate in government. But the other side of it, well, we're never going to live that long anyway. Well, what are we doing? Well, of course we do. You know, again, credit to modern science. So you have people living a lot longer and the in the Supreme Court, it's a lifetime appointment. And you have people that are running for office that... I don't want to sound like an ageist. I truly am not. But I think there comes a time when we can just tell that you can't be in a position to make these critical decisions about our country. Here comes Mike. Here it comes. This, this, one, this is the bone I'm going to throw to people who want to criticize me as being a little too far left. And I am. Um, I'm not excited about Joe Biden running for office again. There, I said it. it. I feel very liberating saying that because I texted you this earlier and I feel like a weight is off my shoulders. I'm not a blindingly foolish Democrat. I'm not excited about a human being running for office who's going to be in their 80s, who I've seen numerous times show me that I don't necessarily know if you have the complete mental faculties to do this job well. Consequently, we've seen Dianne Feinstein. We've seen Mitch McConnell. The average age of people in the Senate is just getting grossly older. And that same professor, Notre Dame, brought up, by the way, the average age of the American voter right now, 30s, so like 38. We are the it's our generation, folks, Generation X on the earlier side, the later side of it. It's us basically right now that makes up the most visible voting block. But it's baby boomers and people of the silent generation are still making all these decisions. And at some point, it's going to stop. And I say all this knowing that his opponent is about five years younger. We're going to basically have just two elderly people fighting it out 
for the presidency of the United States again. We should be able to do better. I don't know why I'm editorializing so much. I would apologize, but I think I'm saying what a lot of Americans are saying right now. This, this is what I got. Can I? Can I real quick? Can I just interject there? Bring it in, bring it in, man. I, I, I first off, uh, and I've echoed this sentiment not only to you but to a national audience as well. Um, uh, I, I'm in accordance with you. I think I think the President Biden that ran in the 2019-2020 debates. All you got to do is watch the footage from that. Just watch the footage. Watch the way he debated against Kamala Harris, against Pete Buttigieg. Um, like you know, uh, he he was way better now. I mean, then excuse me, speaking than he is now. He just was four years ago. Like four years ago, for an older person getting older. It's a different, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I'm not that age. You're not that age, Nick. I've talked with many people and I said, would you let, you know, like if I talk with somebody older and I'm playing golf with them, I go, how old's your father? Uh, 85. Would you let your father be the president of the United States? He's like, absolutely not. I wouldn't, I barely would let him drive my car. Okay. So now translate that over here. I understand president Biden's been in public service for like 40, 50 years. We thank him for that. But as many people have echoed in the comments on our clips, it's got to be term limits. And also, you know, we do this in every other phase of life. We have tests that people have to take at a certain age and point to see if they can continue doing those things because you tend to lose some of your senses and capabilities as you get older. That's not Mike Leon's opinion. That's science. That's like health. Let's, <laughs> it's not Mike Leon's opinion. So uh, I'm with you that... President Biden, we would like all our presidents to be successful, carry out the policy measures that they ran on if you voted for them, right? Um, if you didn't vote for them, you would hope that the checks and balances that are in place in our systems of government will meet those head on. But right now, President Biden doesn't give you a great sense of the future, given his age and given who the Democrats, or lack thereof, who they've outlined would be the next best thing to replace him. Batman's going to retire. Who's better than Robin? Well, Robin's not that great. And Democrats don't even have a Robin right now. Gavin Newsom was supposed to be that Robin. You're going to make you a- slamming Robin? <laughs> Robin's terrible. <laughs> Come um, on. I'd, I'd rather have Alfred running it. And Alfred's old. Um, but anyway, staying off the uh, DC universe there for a second. But there's a perfect example, though, Nick, in all seriousness. Right now, the Democrats have an issue of who's going to be that next person. Republicans, the issue they're having is the person that they have right now, Donald Trump, is fracturing the party. He's destroyed it. It's beyond recognizableness, if that's a word. You can't recognize it anymore. And the other folks that are playing for second and maybe third place right now are people that can't captivate a national audience, specifically moderates and independents. Because that's what happened in 2020. Moderates and independents swayed to Joe Biden. And right now in 2023, those same group of people are going to abstain from voting or they're going to vote for a third party candidate, which you know how we've mentioned on the show. You could take that third party candidate vote, throw it in the trash, put it in the compactor, send it to uh, you know the landfill, because that's the same thing as voting for a third party candidate. So we have issues right now in this country, and I'm with you on it, but- where I'm not with some of the talking points that you see on TV is saying things that are made up about President Biden, right? 
you know, uh, so many missteps in terms of speaking. I just did it a couple of times within this segment. That's one thing. But to make up certain things about him, that cognitive decline and certain things that actually he hasn't displayed just yet, even though he's of that age, he hasn't displayed it just yet. That's where I kind of draw the line. Where are you on that? Because you just mentioned it. Yeah, it is liberating to say it. And and the president's poll ratings, uh, approval rating, excuse me, has shown that a lot of people are in that same category. The problem is, is what am I voting for uh, as the alternative, right? And I, I'd rather, you know, dance with the devil that brought me than the one that's courting me, right? I just made up that slogan, by the way. I know it's something like that. But what do you make of, you know, uh, the buzzwords and phrases that get tossed around about the president entering this older age, as opposed to what's actually happening with him, right? What do you make of some of that as as the as the lefty on this show? Yeah, <laughs> I'm still getting over the fact that Robin caught a strike, but that's okay. <laughs> no, you know it's. Um, I think there's a difference. There is now. I think there is a difference between what you observe and what's proven. So what I observe. In Joe Biden is a person that seems to, you know, lack that spirit, lack that energy that I'm hoping from someone who has a really important job. It's not been proven if his mental faculties are declining. That that you need a test for. That you need the White House doctor to check him out and let us all know where he is. Where I did see a form of one's faculties fading is when you had a former president suggesting drinking Clorox to get rid of COVID seemed like a good idea. And we all remember Dr. Burks in the corner having that curb your enthusiasm moment, right? But just because he said it was a certain level of flair and energy does not make it, it make him sound all that more youthful. I'm concerned about President Biden. I agree with I th- Dan, that was a good point you brought up. In the 2020 debates leading up to it and through them, Yeah, Joe Biden seemed like he had just that vigor to do this job. And I feel like that's been waning now. The bigger question is like about his mental faculties. I agree with you. Let's be careful with that. I mean, you have parents that are getting older. Same with me. Um, You know, for anyone who for anyone who is in that, you know, that class or anyone who has a parent relative, what have you, you we want to be sensitive to the fact that like, what do we know versus what can be proven? Um. My observe my observables of Joe Biden is that this is a person that I don't think projecting out him winning the election in 2024. I think there's a real concern about whether he'll be able to to fully execute on the job. And there should be a question about who is going to be his running mate for that. Um, But on the other side of it, I mean, I've seen enough with President Trump that that would make me just as concerned and both parties should be concerned about this. And I feel like there are whisperings within both parties that this is their top people are not the ideal pick, but no one's just having the gumption to say enough's enough. Yeah. You know, as we put a bow on this here, first off, my apologies to Robin out there. Sorry, but I don't trust you to run Gotham city. Who is that next person that will be the face of either party? And I'm with you, by the way, you know, I mentioned this before on one of the episodes, but if you've got issues with an 81, 82 year old that you'd be voting for in November of 2024, allow me to introduce you to a 79 year old that's just a few years younger that has said some nonsensical things at different times, doesn't have a true policy vision, 
for some of the things that we want solved here in America. So think about that as you head to the ballot box in November of 2024. And before you head to the ballot box, if you want to stop at a bookstore and pick up our guest's book, who's going to be joining us in the next segment, Thomas McCausher. He's a federal judge up in the great state of Connecticut. He wrote this fantastic book that's over my right shoulder for people watching us on YouTube. It's called The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity in the Courts and 50 Ways to Reduce It. A fantastic conversation I had with him on what is broken with our court system and why people aren't trusting it. There's so many great nuggets and stats that you're going to hear from the judge about what we need to change, what he would do if the former president who's under indictment right now or Hunter Biden, who's under indictment as well, approached him and were in his courtroom, what he would do about the publicity and the circumstance that surrounds that. The judge, when we come back on the other side of the break. 
or enter in the promo code after you've taken the quiz, after you've selected the coffee you're going to order, enter in the promo code. Can we please get 20 for 20% off your first purchase? I'm telling you, this coffee is delicious. Go to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right, we're fortunate enough to be joined now by Connecticut Superior Court Judge uh, Thomas McCausher. He's got a brand new book out there, The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity in the Courts and 50 Ways to Reduce It. Judge Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You know, we always have so many different legal analysts on. You're the first judge we've had on. I know you're obviously a a former attorney yourself. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective on a bunch of different things that are playing out in the legal realm from that, you know, sitting on the bench side of it. But first, uh, let's talk a little bit about your book and give our audience a little bit of a 30,000 foot overview of what made you want to write it and what are some of the complexities in the court for people that are not uh, working in the courts every day? Well, I guess I felt somebody had to write it because uh, I think that uh, some faith is being lost in our, our institutions, including the courts. And part of it is because of what the book is about. The con- It's called The Common Flaw needless complexity in the courts and 50 ways to reduce it. And it's that needless complexity that I've been watching for about 40 years in court that I think is is undermining people's uh, faith in the institution. Cases take too long, uh, they're too expensive, uh, and we can't understand when judges write opinions, we can't understand what they're saying. So they aren't faith reaffirming exercises. So I'm trying to invent a, a new way uh, of looking at a lawsuit, and there are 50 specific ways to do it, to turn a lawsuit into something where uh, it focuses on what I've been describing as a humanist approach to litigation rather than a formalist approach to litigation. So the goal is to try to build faith in our institutions and pass on the lessons I've learned. You know, it's so funny that you said that phrase because it feels like the phrase of trust in our institutions has been kind of weaponized or at least uh, to a lesser uh, extent and connotation hijacked, right? Where people are just not trusting in the process. You hear a lot of this two-tiered legal system and things like that. We're going to get into a bunch of that, but w- what are we getting wrong out there about the role of judges and the amount of influence that they have in a trial based on some of the characterizations that you've seen in the media? What, what's, your, uh, what's your opinion on that as, as somebody that has presided over a bunch of different cases and has been in the spotlight? Well, frankly, the first thing that bothers me, actually, is that people have got it all wrong uh, if they're suggesting that our courts are dishonest. Our courts are more honest than they have ever been, and yet we are losing faith in them. And to me, the reason we're losing faith is about the process. It is about the needless complexity. It's about the fact that people can't figure out what's going on in court, and they don't get heard in court. 99.9% of cases never get a trial today. So people go to court, they get messed this way, they get messed that way, and then they get scooted out the door, either with having their case dismissed or being forced into a settlement because they're broke. Now, if we did our jobs more efficiently, we wouldn't have that sort of uh, chatter going on that there must be something, you know, behind the scenes. But it isn't about courts being dishonest. I I feel great about uh, the institution as a bedrock of the country. What bothers me is that I don't feel great about is the way it's being perceived. And I think we can fix that. Very well said. And I I appreciate that a lot, especially as somebody 
with your expertise and knowledge in it. You know, we love to do this on the show where Nick and I do a moment of literacy and we kind of break down some legal terms. You you do that a lot in the book as well, where you try to break it down a, a, as simple as possible. But um, we've seen this wording, speedy trial, the right to a speedy trial kind of mentioned so far in high profile cases that are happening right now with the former president and some of his associates across the different jurisdictions. Um, can you kind of break down uh, when people talk about a speedy trial and some of the things that you mentioned about the courts being slow and, and like your first chapter and stuff like that, is that a measurement that is fairly applied in all cases, uh, which allows a trial to move forward quickly? What causes trials to take longer? Can you kind of break down a little bit of what the right sure. to a speedy trial actually t- is involved in? Well, that's, it's of course a constitutional concept. It's a, uh, it's used in criminal courts. It's a right held by the defendant. Uh, that if they, you know, they, if they want to get to trial, the court has to stop things and get them to a trial. The funny thing is, in criminal cases, is that many, many of the people accused of crimes don't want a speedy trial because they're out and they're free and they don't want to have the thing go forward at all as late as they possibly can. Uh, it's in civil cases that you have parties who are either being sued and are, are paying astronomical sums to their lawyers or are suing and want to get relief. They're the ones probably more interested in having a speedy trial, and they're the ones who get held up by the process because lawsuits get filed and the, the, the document initiating the lawsuit, which we call the complaint, immediately comes under attack, all for technical reasons, not because what you're saying isn't true, not because somebody hasn't been wronged, but because you've written the thing in a way that doesn't conform to the notion of what these things should look like or someone says that you filed in the wrong court, you're the wrong person to bring the lawsuit, it's too late, it's too early, it's everything except the merits of the lawsuit. And that's just the initial phase that slows things down because there's attack after attack on the court's jurisdiction, on the drafting of the complaint, uh, on the uh, gathering of evidence, the process we call discovery, and it's endless, and these things can go on uh, for years. I've been on the bench a decade, and there's a case that I worked on beginning in 2001, and I'm going to get off the bench now, and 22 years later, it's still sitting there being litigated because there's always something a clever lawyer can do to bring a lawsuit to a halt. I've got a piece on that uh, today actually in The Hill, uh, which is uh, related to explaining what, what has happened with the asymmetric uses of lawsuits. Lots of people point to Donald Trump about that, about you can tie a matter up in knots by throwing it into court. And so when people see that, they start to they start to question our system. And I hate that. So my goal is to try and create a way in which that doesn't happen. We're going to get into the former president in a bunch, too, because, you know, as any defense attorney that's been on television will say, uh, something the former president should do is delay, delay, delay. Right. We saw in one instance he asked for a court date in 2026, and now it's obviously been agreed upon for March 4th of 2024. I want to get some of your opinions of how you would uh, preside over a case involving somebody so high profile as the former president. But first, on the book real quick. We've kind of discussed this uh, a little bit in the back and forth, but was there an actual uh-oh moment for you, maybe another catalyst that led you to writing this book? Because the book 
reads like you had a reaction to something. Something actually happened sure. and you said, I need to I need to write this down and I need to actually figure out how to put pen to paper and help out uh, the legal system and the court system. So th- was there that moment there that led to this book? Yeah, there was because um, for eight of the 10 years I've been on the bench, I've been a complex litigation judge. And in watching complex civil cases, because I've done, done complex civil cases and I just finished doing complex family cases and watching these complex cases unfold, I saw that you had people being bankrupted by the process. The worst place to see it is, of course, the family court, where families' finances are absolutely ruined by the process of being heard in court. But I also saw it in commercial contexts where, you know, big companies destroying small companies because the system lets them do it by dragging up the case, by filing many motions, by uh, seeking huge supplies of documents and evidence and deposing everybody who ever heard of the case, it costs, it costs millions. And so what happens is the people are just exhausted and they settle for pennies on the dollar if they're suing uh, or they pay pennies on the dollar if they're not suing. And so, yeah, that was the trigger for me to see it unfolding in these complex cases and, and seeing the impact it was having because it's a kind of asymmetric warfare to use a case to bludgeon somebody. And I don't think judges should be a party to it. Many, many judges see their job as, I think the chief justice said, you know, we call balls and strikes. You're sort of an observer rather than, for instance, a a leader. And I, I think, you know, one of the things I learned from doing complex cases is that judges sometimes or most times should be leaders and not merely observers of what's going on because the harm the harm is enormous. Yeah. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned leaders because now it's going to funnel into some questions we had for you about this whole process right now that's playing out. And we, we see judges so prominently featured and mentioned once a case is assigned to them. Obviously, we know about Judge Eileen Cannon down here where I live in Florida and uh, the Mar-a-Lago case uh, uh, involving the former president. We know about the judge in the D.C. federal court. I would love to know for you, Right now, as you see this playing out right now, uh, of the upcoming trials that the former president will be going through, um, how would you administer, how would you lead uh, in terms of making sure everything is being followed by the books, the different motions that are going to be filed? Um, Could you just kind of break down if something like this high profile where it involves a defendant like the former president, we've never seen this before. So how would you, uh, if you got assigned one of these cases in one of these jurisdictions, what would be some of the things that you'd be looking to to administer and apply? Well, first, let me make clear that I, I have no business uh, saying how the cases should come out or suggesting uh, anything in terms of specific rulings a judge can make. But I can talk about how to handle complex uh, cases, including high profile ones, because I've had uh, a number of them. I had to consider the, the constitutionality of the entire Connecticut educational system at one point in my career. I also had to pass judgment on uh, the governor's emergency orders during COVID. These things, you know, uh, the media is in the courtroom, people are commenting on it, it becomes a political football. And so you, you just have to, you have to establish leadership over the case from the outset. The first thing you do is bring in the parties and you set, set the ground rules that this case is going to be handled in court in an orderly fashion uh, and we're going to show respect for the participants uh, in in the in the litigation. Uh, and once you get the ground rules down, you then have to police and 
one thing that happens in court too often is that parties have to go through uh, a long process to try to get heard when something goes wrong, when one party is doing some, some misconduct or something and they want to get heard about it, they file a motion and the motion file, it gets responded to. And then the court might set a hearing and this can take months. The way I've done it in cases like that is you simply email my clerk and say, we've got a problem. And what I do, and I do, I've been doing this every day for years now, you get on a, on a call like this. We use uh, Microsoft Teams in our system. We're on Zoom. You get on there and you say, what's the problem? And somebody says, this party is doing this, this party is doing that. Rather than briefing, rather than having motions, those things can take months. You just get on there and you say, what is the problem? Okay, here's how we're going to handle it. And I write down an order and it goes out immediately. And the consequences of failing to obey that order are laid out. Uh, and judges have a lot of tools to be able to do that, uh, including in cases where someone is, again, I think of it as asymmetrical warfare, where they're out there in the media blasting the court itself. And there are judges actually, you know, they have the tools uh, to deal with this and they should do it. And I'd be glad to tell you about some of them if you'd like. No, well, actually, it funnels into the follow-up perfectly because um, your book opens up about the courts can't keep up with with memes, right? Um, so in that vein, it seems as though right now, so high profile with the former president, but he has such a platform because he's running for the highest office in the land again. So he's very front-facing in terms of interviews, the campaign trail, and also owns his own social media app. And it seems like with each of these cases and each of these judges that will be assigned to these different jurisdictions, he, he is lambasting, you know, the prosecution. He's doing things uh, with respect to the judge. So I'm just curious. I know I know it's such a, a wild scenario because you probably have never encountered somebody so front facing <laughs> that is kind of, you know, taking apart the system while it's unfolding. But you you mentioned some of the, the tools that a judge would have at its disposal. So what do you think are some of the things judges in, in these specific cases that are, you know, the subject of the defendant's ire on social media? What are some things that they can do and enforce, given the nature of the defendant who is so high profile and a former president of the United States? Well, obviously, there's the First Amendment concern that people, you know, have a right to speak, and they certainly have a right to say that they don't think they're being fairly prosecuted. But that doesn't mean mean that any person. And I, again, I'll talk about complex cases. I've I've had conspiracy theorists in front of me. I've had people, you know, blogging while the court's in session. I've had people trying to confront and and frankly, you know, judges uh, in complex family matters get uh, people trying to kill them. So you're under a lot of pressure and there's a lot of focus. Uh, and uh, what happens is you can put somebody to the test when they're using asymmetric warfare to lie about the judge, to lie about the court, lie about a prosecutor, lie about witnesses. The way I have done it, and I've had to deal with this, uh, is to say, all right, so you claim uh, this judge is biased. If it were me, I'd send the case to another judge to have a hearing. You claim I'm biased, I send it to somebody else. I've had judges send those cases to me. And the question is, is this judge biased? And I've had the most outrageous allegations of, you know, the judges involved in a payback scheme and a, and a bribery scheme or involved in human trafficking and all kinds of things. So what I've done in cases like that, I say, all right, so you think this judge is, is, is biased, 
put on your evidence. You claim that this person is corrupt. Put on the evidence. If it turns out that you have a basis to say what you're saying, I tell you that I'm going to act on it. If there were any, if there were truth to it, if there was a biased judge or a corrupt judge, my God, you know, any judge would be glad to uncover that and slam it and do something uh, to, to make sure it didn't stop and that people got punished. But we also know that in these cases that you, you say, put on your evidence, you say this is true, you're going around saying it, and then they come in and there's no evidence. Give it to me. Come on, where is it? Because if it's true, I'm going to act on it. But then it proves to be not true. And at that point, out-of-court statements that are lies, that have been proved to be lies in court, that are designed to undercut in-court proceedings, can be acted on by the judge. That you can you can punish them uh, in a wide variety of ways. Criminal court, of course, they have the most uh, powerful means by the conditions of release. You're you're prohibited from trying to undercut the credibility of the hearing, to undercut the people in the case. And when it's already been proved that you've been lying about it, then you can say, "I'm sorry, we're going to have to change the conditions of your release." One more public lie about this court or its participants, and you know. No more bond for you. You get you get incarcerated. Very easy in a criminal case, a little harder in a civil case. But the point about in a civil case, you have the power of saying, all right, your misconduct gets dealt with in court by saying you either lose the lawsuit. You This is civil cases now. You lose the lawsuit. You lose part of the lawsuit. Or when the jury gets impaneled, the judge says to the jury, look, I want you to know that there have been a hearing and this person has told 42 public lies about this proceeding. There was a hearing held and it was concluded on it. So you ladies and gentlemen, knowing that this person's lied 42 times can consider that when you're deciding whether the person is lying to you now. So there are lots of tools to, to be able to deal with it. What, what worries me, I think the mistake too many judges do is they wait too long to do something about it. And you've lost control of the train, you know, it starts wobbling back and forth and, and could jump off of the tracks. And I know some people in criminal cases say, well, I'm going to move up the trial date. But you, you can't you can't usually do that fast enough to uh, to address the real problem. It's it takes too long. You have to give people the chance to get their evidence and the things And both sides would probably say, you wait a minute, we can't rush immediately in the trial. I need a few weeks. But in the meantime, that damage is being done out there. So the, I prefer the other way of dealing it head, head on. You know, Judge, one of, the, uh, one of the cool things, I guess, or maybe not cool, you're going to tell us in a second about advancements in technology has been cameras in the courtroom, right? We've seen court TV catch fire and obviously different trials, high profile trials, high profile defendants on television. Now, we know with the former president <clears throat> facing federal and state charges that the state court in Georgia will have access to cameras in federal court. There won't be any access to cameras. I want to ask you as a judge, um, I think a lot of people are thinking about this. They they are lacking trust in the, in the institution, like you mentioned. Um, what would, would you be open to having court uh, be open to the public via television for the former president in these federal cases? What do you make of that? Could Is there a possibility in the interest of transparency and who the defendant is as the former president of the United States, do we have a right to actually see these trials take place so the people can judge for themselves because he is running for the highest office in the land? 
Yeah. In general, that's a tough question because uh, people start playing to the cameras sometimes and people try to disrupt proceedings sometimes. But in general, I I tend to think that, and, and by the way, Connecticut law is this way, that we have a presumption that cameras can be had in the court. Our state has a presumption that it's the right thing to do. I did the first trial during COVID that was conducted uh, remotely over uh, teams in, in Connecticut. And that was that was live streamed on on uh, YouTube, so it was there on YouTube, and and anybody could watch the court proceedings. You, we had a series of channels where you could go to this courthouse, go to that courthouse, and see what's going on. And uh, I was kind of excited about that. We backed away from it some, but uh, I do a lot of proceedings that are because I do complex cases. I do proceedings from all over the state, and many times I do them remotely. And anybody who wants to come in has a right to come in and watch that remote proceeding. Uh, and I think it's, uh, I'm all for it. I, I, I do believe that, I do believe that on balance, uh, that sort of transparency is, is a good thing because people will, people will see that, uh, you know, you've got honest people trying to do their best. Uh, and when you see real judges uh, trying to hear cases and things, you know, 99% of the time they're, they're just decent people who are, who are trying to do a job. Judge, before we let you go, somebody, we love to do this a little quick elevator pitch. I'm at the bookstore or somebody listening to this program is at the bookstore. They happen to see this book, The Common Floor, out there. What is something you want them to take away from this book? Whether or not they're, you know, in the legal realm or they're not, what is something you would want them to take away from this book? Well, let's say you're not in the legal realm. It's, it's a look behind the courthouse door. Uh, it's a look at a future where uh, the courts are responsive to, to public needs. For people in the uh, in the legal profession, it's a roadmap. So you can get a, a look at the, what we do, you get a roadmap out of the woods. Uh, and so that's what I'd like uh, people to see is that you can learn about, about courts if you're not a lawyer. You can learn how to fix them if you are. I love it. Judge Thomas McCausher, you know, as a criminal justice minor, I wish I had been a lawyer. So I appreciate this book. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. Continued success to you, sir. And please stay safe. Thanks very much. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. Kitcaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. All right. Our thank yous there to federal judge Thomas McCausher. Like I mentioned, he's got a new book out. You can go get the book wherever it's sold. The Common Flaw, Needless Complexity in the Courts and 50 Ways to Reduce It. That was really good stuff. That's our show for today. If you want to check out the video portion of the interview that we did with the judge, head over to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should pop right up. Hit the subscribe button for me. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody that listens to us on Good Pods. YouTube Music, we're live on YouTube Music. If you've got the app, download it. If you don't have the app, subscribe to our show over there. As always, we can't do it without each and every one of you that listens into this program. I am Mike Leon. I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.